For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, uh, before we get going, this is Aaron, one of the co-hosts of this show. I actually have a new podcast. It's called Stoner. It's interviews with creative, interesting, productive people who like weed marijuana. Uh, we also have some people who work in the marijuana economy on the show, but it's mostly artists and musicians and people who make the internet and all kinds of people talking about weed. So if you or someone you know or love might be interested in that show, uh, check it out. You can find it anywhere that podcasts are found. Stoner. Okay, here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Evan Ratliff of hey, the Atavist and Max Linsky of Longform. Hello. Hey, you guys. This week on the show, someone I've wanted to have on for a long time, someone who I was not sure would come on the podcast or was even like a real person with the name that she purported to have on Twitter, Patricia Lockwood, poet, but she just wrote a memoir. It's called Priest Daddy. It's about what happened when she and her husband, her husband had a medical emergency and they had to move back in with her parents. Her father is a very, very unusual priest. I like the sound of this. I feel like I should apologize to Patricia Lockwood yeah. because uh, she got here before you did for that yeah. interview and I had to leave and I just like uh, stuck her in a room with other people she didn't know and left also. Yeah, I think it was her and Wesley Morris, but uh, she did know who Wesley Morris was. <laughs> it was uh, it was not hospitable. <laughs> if you're stuck in a room with someone, Wesley Morris is, a, yeah. is uh, it, yeah, one of could, the best, it could be probably. Wor- it could be worse than getting stuck in a room with Wesley. Still, sorry. We are brought to you, as always, by the good people at MailChimp. Wait, we got something We got something a little different with MailChimp. We got readthesummer.com. This summer... The uh, three of us have curated a reading list of books for the fine people at MailChimp, and we encourage you, the listeners, to uh, read along with us. It all culminates in a festival in Decatur, Georgia, home of not actually the home of MailChimp, but spiritual home of MailChimp. That's right. The Decatur Book Festival is like the largest independent book festival in the country. And uh, Evan and I are going. You're not going, Aaron. I was invited, though. I'm uh, <laughs> I, w- I haven't been banned. If that's if that's what listeners are thinking. I have a wedding to attend. Max, let's give him one example of a book that's on this list and an author that's coming to the Decatur Book Festival. How to Be a Person in the World by Heather Haverleski. Uh, her advice is uh, unparalleled, 
and she will be there with us at the Decatur Book Festival. So go check out that book. And in the meantime, here's Aaron with Patricia Lockwood. Welcome, uh, Patricia you. Lockwood. I have a lot of questions for you, and I'm a, this is unusual for me because I just finished your book, Priest Daddy. And normally when people come on the show, I'm like, hey, how did you become a writer? And you kind of wrote a book about how you became a writer. Mm. Or you wrote a book about the period of I your did. life where you started doing this. Yeah, I did that so that I wouldn't get that question. So let's go like further back. And, mm. and at what point in your life did you start thinking, I want to write things and have other people read them? Mm. So it goes back for me pretty far, but I don't know that I had a whole lot of models in my life Yeah, for being a writer. It wasn't like I looked around at my family and there were all these brilliant writers, but I did have an uncle who was an artist, which I do write about in the book a little bit. And I think having a person in your family who is a writer or an artist or who is engaged in the arts in some way, it's like having a suicide in the family. <laughs> It makes it seem possible, right? Yeah. It gives you that example to look towards. So I was very, very young. I mean, it's it's something I can always remember thinking about, really. It was more about just finding a form for me. The places that you grew up, uh, your father was a priest. Can was, I cuss? You can totally cuss. Shitholes. Shitholes. You grew yeah. up in shitholes. Chris- shitholes. Shitholes with uh, um, light salting of Christianity or a heavy dose Heavy of salt, Heavy I salt of say. Christianity. So the people that you were growing up, up around when people would get who would want to be involved in something artistic and mm-hmm. creative are we talking like christian bands no no nothing like that and i think we have this idea about the midwest or about rust belt cities that there aren't like creative scenes there right and there really are it's just that i had no access to them and particularly as a child it wasn't like there were tons of cultural events around the city that my parents were taking me to or mm. anything like that but no those things absolutely exist there and those ambitions exist there uh it has to do with whether or not people can get connected to a scene and whether that scene can get connected to the wider world in such a way that it gains attention. But no, it's it's not like a barren cultural wasteland where people are just starting Christian rock bands. Um, I mean, we have some of those, but I almost feel like they're coming from somewhere else. So when you're in these barren wastelands that have far more than Christian rock bands mm. in them, it seems like the new ingredient that emerged during your uh, lifetime was the internet. Yeah. When did you get the internet? I feel it was about the mid-90s. Yeah. And we had, again, one of those huge-ass computers that was basically like a box that you get at Costco to put all of your like cans of V8 in or something like that. Like You literally could fit a human head in it. And it would make that crazy dial-up sound. What was that McKelvey tweet recently that he was like, back in the day when you had to kill a robot to get online and it screams power to your internet? It's like, that's how it felt, you know? Yeah. So you got one computer in the house. You're it's from the a big family, computer. and you're from a pretty big family. It's the large. So there's Irish a lot Catholic of family. hands on the computer. It's a sticky keyboard. Yeah. Did the computer as a vessel for personal expression occur to you? That was not until a little bit later. I mean, I talk in the book a little bit. I, at one point, I was like researching suicide methods on the family computer, so there was no sense that anyone was like looking at your search history in the way that parents now would be like, well, let's make sure that my kid is not researching suicide <laughs> methods online. That would have been weird with a bunch of kids, too. You're like, which one of you kids Which was searching you, was for it? suicide information? It would very obviously have been me. It was. This was before we had emos, and it was after goths, so there was really nothing 
for me to do. There was no cool configuration for me to put my hair into. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't until later on, actually, that there were things like bulletin boards and uh, poetry chat rooms were great because you could go into a private room and then you could just, you know, have cyber sex. But it was more lyrical than it generally was. Okay, I'm really interested in poetry chat rooms because I've never been in one, but I was part of the chat generation. That chat generation. Okay, so like tell me about the person that you were when you started hanging out in poetry chat rooms. Were you writing poetry? Were you posting poetry to the chat room? No, I was not posting it to the chat room because it was um, like a pain in the ass to do that. You had to do it like a line at a time. It was mostly just to find uh, like-minded people, which I don't know. I mean, you could your font could be a different color. It's like, yeah. of course, that's where I was going to be. What kind of poetry were you reading at the time? Oh, gosh. When I think back to it, I think I was probably reading like a ton of Rilke at that point. I got really obsessed with him. And I was like, oh, his poetry is like full of angels, but they have dicks and they fuck for sure. You know, so at that time I was writing a lot of stuff that was like heavy, heavy Jesus poetry. What was it like finding like minded people after coming from a place where people were not particularly like-minded. Well, I like to be online because I was just like a string of text. So I don't even think it was so much that I was like this yearning hand reaching out of my chest for other like-minded people of my kind. It wasn't even like that. I just liked to be a sentence pretty much that was floating in the ether towards someone else. And it's not true really that I had never known like-minded people. I went to like a very sort of artistic high school Uh and the 90s felt to me like a very creative DIY decade too. Yeah. Which that comes around around every so often so I feel like we're back in that again do you feel that way I do I feel that way I think it goes in like 20 cycles packaging kind of um, okay 20 years I think so so like uh, so we're experiencing like the 50s 70s loop right now 50s 70s 90s now you know it sort of goes in like 20 25 year cycles along with fashion what was the first time you shared your own work and poetry Mm, gosh I don't even remember I mean there could be a couple of different you know answers to that there's you know you win a contest in fourth grade that's something you get your first actual poem published when you're like 19 or something like that or there's there's a bunch of different instances of becoming very tinily visible to very select groups yeah you published a book of poetry in 2012 I think so Um, (laughs) it was kind of before really anyone was following you as it was, it was before, oh, yeah. uh, like no one knew who I was. It was yeah. a, uh, a a shot in the dark, definitely. And I guess most poetry books are shots in the dark, so that's that's not shocking. But where did like where did the creative process that ended up with you having a book of poems okay. that was done that you could put a label on it? Yeah, again? for true. Okay, so I I'm a person who's had a manuscript of poetry in hand, this big old chunk, basically yeah. since I was 16 years old. And all that would happen is that I would just write new poems, replace old ones in the manuscript, and eventually end up with a totally different chunk. Mm. So by the time that Balloon Pop was published, I had already gone through like four manuscripts. And Balloon Pop, Outlaw Black, it was really the the product of an indie scene that happened in poetry like a while back with presses like Wave and Octopus and Black Ocean that sort of arose as a a counter effort against more academic presses. Mm. So a lot of these guys hooked up at the big writing conferences, AWP, and they started putting out cooler books that had a little bit better art. And a side effect of the fact that it, you know, came out of these smaller circles is that people were really publishing their friends. So 
by the time I got my book accepted by Octopus, I think they were reaching out more to people they didn't know. So the process of it getting published was very interesting. It was totally a shot in the dark. It had been, you know, like a finalist for some other things. Some other people were considering it. But I didn't know anyone. I didn't know those guys. And it was just, you know, I got that email one day that was like, we chose this as, you know, the book that we're going to publish or one of the books we're going to publish this year. I'm curious about the process of toiling in oblivion. Mm. When I like that. When That's you, the part I like. When you have those three or four books yeah. of poetry that have like slowly been overwritten by new material. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who write narrative books will say like, oh, I have like two novels in the drawer from like yeah. I wrote before I showed it to anyone. Is it difficult to keep track of your place and time and space and sort oh, of totally. see a sense of progression in yeah. your work when you're yeah. working like that? Yeah, a little bit. And something that poets do to counteract that is to start project books, you know, where they're like, I'm going to base these on Emily Dickinson's master letters or Mm. something like that, because it gives a a more firmly delimited um, idea to that. Because otherwise it is, it's like you're in this slipstream and it's just very fluid. And what's happening is that you're feeling, before you have a book published at all, you're feeling this sort of a propulsive energy in yourself that has nowhere to go. It has no outlet. And all that it results in is the creation of new poems, basically. Your first uh, two collections, the second one is Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland, Sexual. Very well done. Um, they're pretty different. Yeah. Like what was go- what happened in mm-hmm. that span and what happened to your writing during that span between those first couple books? It is funny because a lot of times people talk about my poetry. They're like, this her smutty, transgressive yeah. poetry. But if you read the first book, it's like there's no, no. sex in it really But you at hadn't all. heard about it's sex It's about yet. cartoons. I had not yet learned about sex. Well, I'm unusual, maybe, in that as soon as I'm done with a book, I sort of forget how to write completely. I forget how I did it. As soon as I open that new file or start that new notebook... Anything can really happen there. So, like, the form can just radically change. It's almost like a a new voice arrives. Now, with Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland Sexuals, I was... That was the result of a sort of concerted effort to see if I could bring humor into my poetry. Because... I'm like, well, I'm a funny person. My poems are never funny to the point where, you know, sometimes they like make you want to die. So is there something I can do where I can bring in this voice that is sort of like surreal and absurd? And it's a sort of like anything goes impulse. Can I bring that in to my previous poetry, which was a little bit more contemplative and up its own ass? A corollary that that occurred to me was like, I had no idea what you were going to be like when you walked into this room. Mm. Like you could be very quiet and introspective and say like, that's not, no, (laughs) put you know, um, smutty Twitter, uh, like poet is like a, uh, not a character I play, but like, that's my written voice. And you'll meet comedians sometimes who you sit down in a room with them and they're actually kind of quiet, withdrawn. You hear this about Christopher Guest. who's like one of my favorite comedy guys. Like you talk to him in person. Apparently he never tells a joke. Well, I thought maybe like, here's what I was thinking when we came into the room. I was like, I know you outside of this book, because I've Mm. been following your writing for a pretty long time Mm -hmm. now, as um, someone who wants to get the perfect sentence, the perfect phrase. And I could understand if you were like, well, I don't want to run my mouth on the microphone. Oh, no, I love to run my mouth. Yeah, that's my second favorite thing after getting the perfect sentence is running my mouth, yeah. Okay, so during the period, like, there's something that happened in the period between the first and the second book where it seemed like both the humor and the, like, filthy jokes kind of element came in. But also, 
it feels more like you. I got more of much more of an Possibly. impression of like who you are and sort of what your story is. Yeah, but this is something that happens when I interact with people. Hmm. When I'm in a room alone, I fall to a default state that feels to me the most like me, and that is the state that produces the really serious poems. So, I might be one of those Dr. Jekylls. Yeah. They, those crop up from time to time, but it really I mean both sides I think are are genuinely myself, but you know, they're different. When did you get on Twitter? 2011. What did Twitter do for you? Um, honestly, it gave me some friends, like some some cool friends, and it's the only reason I'm sitting here right now. You know, yeah. it's 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 the reason that I have a book like Priestaddy. It's the reason I have the third book. Yeah. What was it like as someone who was like? I assume you spend a lot of your time writing poetry, like in Priestaddy, like. There's not many that like nine to five jobs. There's not. There's no jobs, and there's, there's almost no not a single job in yeah. that book. It's one of the most unemployable books. Yes, possible. Unemployed books. Unemployed yes, and unemployable. <laughs> so I'm assuming that you spend like a lot of your time writing, and or at least like engage in the overall project of writing. Yeah, I spend a lot of my time in a receptive state that to an outsider would just appear like a sort of kind of vacant insanity. That right. To me, feels like a, a holy state that is waiting for the poems to come. And you started posting things on Twitter that, like, I don't like to get into, like, is it poetry or is it not mm. poetry kind of discussions. You'd be the first who didn't like to get into that. Whether you consider them poetry or not, some of them started getting more attention than your poetry. Like, the first thing you wrote that I came across was a really good tweet. What was it like getting attention for something that wasn't your primary outlet? Well, I mean, I've talked about this a little bit, but I really am like in the public sphere, kind of like a clown, like kind of like a little attention hog. So so that that seems fairly normal to me. Well, it just seems like if you're a person who wants to, you know, run your mouth, it's just like fairly natural that, you know, people start to look at you because you're saying insane things. But what I like is to have a new space. I like to have a new box to type in. And when I get something like that, it frees me up a little bit. Yeah. Like, so Twitter now feels much more rigid, more like encrusted. But, you know, back when it first started, I had honestly like one of those little phones that you had a little keyboard that you type on. And it just seemed fun. Like no one was paying attention to what I did. And then eventually they were paying attention. And that I took in the general course of things. I think of like a lot of distinctions between publishing poetry and, and Twitter. Yeah. And I think the obvious one to discuss is like, oh, it's ultra compressed. It's only 140 characters. Mm-hmm. You have to think of every word. But now we have tweet threads and things like that. So, I mean, we have screenshots. Like, is it, it even that compressed anymore? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. The part that strikes me as kind of radical for someone in the situation you were in is publishing daily. Like yeah. writing something out, publishing it, and then getting the like the pushback what what was it like writing so much in real time? Well, it's <laughs> it really is a, like a rat with a pellet situation. Like you do have to be careful that you're not training your brain to just like hit that send button and like watch the little pellets flood in. Because I don't think that's really great for you. Yeah, it's good for you maybe as a public personality, but it's not good for you as a writer. So you do have to have these chunks of time where you're just completely unplugged from it. Like you can't look at it, which is harder and harder at the current moment. Because what what has happened in the time that we have been talking? 
we could be at war. The world is moving. It's like it's like time put on like seven league boots or something is how it feels. I mean, you have something in common with Donald Trump and that you both owe your careers to Twitter. Oh, boo. <laughs> boo. So. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> what? What inspired you to write a book in the first place? I actually was surprised when I had heard that you were writing a memoir. Yeah, like, it's, yeah. Like, something that I've, like, admire a lot about your writing was, like, it being kind of a moving target mm-hmm. where it was like, I don't even really know what she's really Ooh, like. Yeah, mm. This could all be kind of made Camouflage, up. Camouflage, yeah. And now I know a lot about you, and the book's but really to excellent. you? Well, the period where I was reading your tweets that mm-hmm. I really liked, now I kind of know, like, what bedroom you were sleeping in. It's so funny, because... And I have not ever mentioned this to anyone, but that Jonathan Franzen tweet that is always every time he comes into the news and says something about like an orphan yeah. he thought about adopting gets retweeted like a million times. I wrote that living in the rectory. It was one of the first things in the file that was like the the rough draft of my book because I didn't know what my book was going to be like. So yeah. it just had all these little like surreal paragraphs. And that was out of that. The really? Paris Review tweet was when I lived with my parents. Yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, it's that's fascinating in its own right mm. to sort of see the same thing twice from different perspectives. Yeah. But I'm curious what it's like for you and, and what it was like reliving fairly recent history. Well, because you said you were surprised when you found out that I was writing a memoir. But I, I, I sort of had to. Mm-hmm. I was super, super poor. We had moved back in <laughs> yeah. with my parents like because, you know, my husband had this crazy medical crisis and we had had to raise the money so that he could get the surgery in the first place. And then when things went a little bit haywire, we had no backup. Like we, yeah. we had basically no choice. And so, uh, you know, I'm sitting there. I'm listening to my parents talk. I'm writing down what they say. And I think to myself, you know, I always said I wouldn't do this. You know, that's not the sort of book that I thought I would write. But I was writing it. You know, it was already happening. Yeah. And it didn't feel totally natural. And I've talked about this a little bit too. Like I wanted to keep certain chapters set aside where it felt like I could do something more lyrical or something that was closer to poetry in them. Because otherwise, I mean, there is something deadening about always in your writing having to know what day it was you know who said this first like what did I eat for breakfast that morning is this true yeah those are generally not the kind of considerations that are on your mind when you write poetry well the book starts off as kind of a straightforward like this is who I am this is how I ended up in this situation and then it kind of explodes yeah into a lot of different threads yeah which Uh, I wanted to do formally because I think a memoir I think you can do interesting things with form it's one of the places where you can really you can explode it and like we're still doing that we're still mixing it up I think in a way that is interesting or has a lot of possibilities when you started writing about your family certainly like I don't think the book is ultimately making fun of your family Mm. but if someone wrote a book about me that was included these details, I would probably I would not, kill them. Yeah, I would not take Oh no, them I out. would murder that person. Yeah. So the book is a lot about being poor and it's a lot about class and it's a lot about for me as a reader going to a place that's pretty different than yeah. where I grew up and where I live. How were you thinking about those issues when you were depicting your own family and how people would perceive them and, and how they would perceive themselves if they read the book? My family occupies such a weird class position because my dad was a rich boy. Right. My dad was a rich boy who idolized the blue collar and working class to such a degree that he made sure that his sons 
would belong to it or that, you know, his daughters would not get an education. So it was this very interesting thing where he had had access to like all those glories of the world that you would want. And he somehow put us in the position where we could not have those things. So I think it is an affectionate portrayal. And that has been the feedback that I've received. But you're right. Like, if someone told me they were writing a book about me, I would make sure that they did not leave the room alive. So there's a, a generosity, like you can say what you will about my family, say what you will about my parents, but there is a generosity even in, you know, like continuing to talk to a person after they undertake that task. At the same time, your portrayal of your father, you're a person who has a strong personality. And so it's not entirely shocking that you're the child of someone who's a very large personality. Very large personality, yeah. Is that like something that occurred to you as a, like when did you kind of like connect those dots? Yeah, no, and that's, that is true. And, And people have kind of brought that to my attention. But it's funny because my mom is a much more retiring person, but her language is also this kind of like cartoon language that is very quotable. My dad is physically, like he's, he's like a cartoon in every respect. And the thing that I think, when I think about what I inherited from him, it really is like his mouth. We, do, we don't think before we say anything, we just open it up and whatever comes out is what comes out. But for my mom, it's, it's that more careful desire to set things down in a very precise form that she can control, that she feels that she can make perfect. What happens when you have to fill up a a whole book and not a poem with these things? I think in my proposal, I was like, this book might be 50,000 words, (laughs) because I didn't think that there was any way. But as I kept going, I tended to concentrate specifically on chapters in themselves and not think as much about what the arc was like necessarily as I was concentrating on the certain chapters. So they kind of unfolded within themselves. And before you knew it, you were like, good God, this book is like 333 pages. Half of the devil's number, might I add. Was it difficult as you started to approach the present day? Like the book starts... You're 19 in the start at the start of the book, I think. Yeah, I right? guess technically. Although I do dip back into childhood and right. things like that. But yeah, but like, that, I would I would say 19. Yeah. Yeah. So as the book goes on, you're closer to you mm-hmm. now, and I think most people are like, "Whoa, I do not want to write about myself right now." I don't know if I feel that way. I think the writing in the book that is about me that feels the most intimate is about writing. It's about yep. like the way I think or it's about my process. And those were the pieces I kept trying to take out. And my husband was like, no, those are like the interesting pieces. So you you talked about showing the drafts uh, to your husband, mm. who's also a pretty big character in the book. Yeah. A calming uh, A calming character. presence yeah, in the book. Yes, a presence. And you're unusual in that you've been in a relationship basically like during your entire development as yeah. a writer. That's weird. Is person. that weird to you guys, to someone like you reading the book, that no. someone like me gets married when they're 21? No, I don't think it's actually that weird yeah. to get married. I know people who've been with the same person since they were in college. Yeah. I don't know someone who's had the same reader and the same yeah, like God, bouncing board for their entire time. Usually mm-hmm. it's like you spend some time making like art and literature and then you find like another writer and it's like, oh, now we're sharing our work. And you've had the same reader Mm -hmm. for a lot of that time. Like, what was that like in the early days and how has it evolved over time? Well, it's different with poetry because you would only 
you know, show them the poem once you're finished and once you feel that it's finished enough that someone else can look at it. So it was he was never involved in that sort of way, you know, where it was like this this collaboration between us. It was always I gave him things that I felt were done. Right. This was not like that. Priest Daddy was not like that. I actively enlisted him to go forth into the household and collect conversations, to write things down, to really help me in that regard, and to read as I went. I mean, so this book felt more malleable, like a more protein, like a more fluid as it went, because I... I was telling people, I was like, I can change this. I want your opinion. I don't give a shit what you think about my poetry, but I want to know what you think about this chapter and how I can make it better. What were, what were people's reactions to the early drafts like? Oh, man. I had maybe like three readers. And generally, the feedback was just along the lines of like, there needs to be more in it. you know. So I write a skeleton and it needs to be fleshed out. So good readers or like my editor, who's an excellent, excellent fucking editor, he just sort of guides you gently along the path of, of coaxing more out of you. Because in reality, and, and you wouldn't know this, you know, sitting down with me today, I'm, I'm reticent. So the initial draft of this or the initial drafts of the chapters, I sort of had to be drawn out to put in those things that were maybe more unflattering, mm. that were like a little bit harder. It was very, very difficult for me to quote certain lines of my father's that were very pertinent. I didn't write the scene where he tells me that I can't go to college until like two months before I turn in the draft. Because you were worried it made him look bad? In a way, but it also felt like complaining. Mm. So what you don't want to do when you write a memoir is to write a complaining book. I mean, that's to me, that's the number one thing you go into it, like not to write the complaining book. And it felt like any time I said something specific, I'm like, is this complaining? I never thought it was complaining at all. Thank you. But um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. Um, the part that was striking for me as someone who had been reading your work was sincere is the wrong word, but mm. there is like a literalness to your prose writing. And you're talking about real people where mm-hmm. it, it can't end on that like half done tweet where it, it, it hits you in a kind of a, a sideways way. Like right. there's a directness to it that you don't have to necessarily do in poetry or in the perfect tweet or something like that. Like that moment is like that. It's like, you just literally say what happened and kind yeah. of like let people think what they and would. And that's strange to me as a poet. I'm like, well, I guess I'll tell you just what happened then. Yeah. But I, the humor has to be there as well because it, in my family household, it was the absurdity or the surrealism that we have is like in reaction to the craziness of the household. So something like your underwear clad father with his <laughs> hand in a vat of pickles sitting in a room full of $10,000 guitars and telling you that he can't afford to send you to college. That's bad. That's a sad scene. But it's also totally like a lunatic scene. I mean, right. it's it just the very fact of it, like all these accoutrements, all the elements of the scene, they are funny. So it's not like I, I can't put that in because I see that those things are there. Yeah, there's a kind of a strain of American humor. Mm-hmm. Like the American male buffoon mm. is a rich character, like, like appears know. in all kinds of art and in literature. I think it's actually an, an archetypal English character. Uh, probably, I think prob- of him as like J. Thaddeus Toad. I think of him as Uncle Matthew from the Nancy Mitford books. So there, I think it begins there. I think that there is a strain of American humor that actually has its roots in like the English eccentric mm. portrayal. Even like a Dickensian thing. And then like the American take on that is like 
bigger, the, louder, and the dude from Family Guy. Yeah, <laughs> he has a butt for a chin. Yeah. What about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and like if you listen to like radio ads, there's a trope on a radio ad. I guess it's in TV commercials too, where it's like the guy is kind of a like an insensitive in, idiot, oh, and like ugh. that's the that's sort of the joke, and. In your book, it's kind of like, what if you really had to like live with a person who had the attitude of like a man in, in a radio commercial? Yeah. Like in someone who had no like filter on sort of outrageous behavior and statements. Yes, but not in the typical way that you would expect. So that kind of thing is based on this previously existing caricature. Yeah. If you really look at the stuff that comes out of my dad's mouth, these are things that like no one has ever it's all, said it's before. It's all uncharted territory. You're like, what are you talking about? So maybe this is something where every sort of uh, culture or country or society like maps their own experience of this man, this boorish type of man that must exist like right. all across the world. Maybe they're mapping it onto the experience of reading this book. Because when I was in England, everyone was like, this is like a British book. This is like a British sense of really? humor that you have. Yeah. I think of it as so distinctly American, but obviously I would because I've never spent really. Yeah, any time no, in and they would they would like come up to me after the readings, and I was like, wow, I, I feel in a way like these people are getting it a little bit better. Right. It or it felt like a lot of the British reviews really got the humor of it a little bit better. I thought than the American ones did. What have the reactions been like among people who know you really well, your family? people who knew you sort of coming up through this process. Yeah, they've all been very supportive. But again, like, you know, my mom and dad have not read it. (laughs) (laughs) Our daughter wrote a book. Check it out. No, my my mom is so great because I'm like, my my husband will send her reviews and stuff and be like, oh, look, Karen, she got this really great review here. And mom's like, oh, I'll have to read it. (laughs) It's like anyone else, you would think that you would hop right on that just in the gossip way. You would want to know what she said about you. My dad's never going to read it. And you still live in, you live in Kansas. I live in Savannah now. Savannah. We moved back, yeah. That uh, that thing I read on the internet. It's dated. hard to keep up. It's no, it really up. is. Yeah, a couple of people have, have asked beforehand because they know that I move like every year and a half. What, what's up with that? My husband is a third culture kid. Do you know what that is? No. So he was born overseas and he grew up in Thailand and Korea, uh, like for the first part of his life. And it's apparently an experience of people who like ambassadors, kids, missionaries, kids. Is that the same same thing as saying you're an army brat? Yeah, something it's it's sort of like that. So they don't really have a sense necessarily of rootedness or a place that they want to stay. They're always sort of looking around for a new thing. And he particularly like really hates Authority. He like doesn't like America and that sort of thing, you know. So he's always like trying to find the place that feels the least American. So he started in Kansas and then moved to Georgia. No, I mean we've been everywhere, man. Yeah. We were in like Kentucky. We were in Cincinnati. Like, we're... What, like what inspired? Like what, how did you just picking these on a map or like what? I don't even know. I just go like where he's like, well, I've got a job here, and then I yeah, we were in New Hampshire, Florida. Yeah. All but you don't like Colorado. get a job in some strange city unless you've applied for a job. Exactly. In that city. It's yeah, not yeah, like yeah. I've been like, eh, like I got a like a gig in Seattle. No, Let's I know. do it. That's why it's so crazy. But it seemed normal to me because yeah. we moved. Con- Constantly when I was growing up, my dad was always like burning some bridge which an arch- with like an archdiocese and then he would move elsewhere. So, yeah, I thought it was normal. Is it hard to operate outside of a, I'm making air quotes here. I do literary, three fingers. Three fingers. Try three. Literary community. Or is that something that you get from 
the online world? I thought I wanted, you know, you have this fantasy when you're young, when, when you're a teenager and in your early 20s of existing at the heart, the beating heart of a literary community. But then I grew up and I started to go around and go to readings and actually meet the literary people. And I was like, oh, no, I just want to be in my room. I was like, I don't actually want that, apparently. I thought that it would be some sort of, like, font of scintillating talk or something like that. But for the most part, it really isn't. Or maybe it's me. No, I think I'm a pretty good talker. Do you think about, you've done two poetry books, you've done one memoir. Where, like, where do you go from there? Or what, like, what's the next thing that you're like, ah, I really want to, like, achieve this? Hmm. Oh, I don't think in terms of that. You, okay, so what? No, what I'm terms like do you I'm like of? one of those little moles that's bumping its nose against the tunnel. Is that I talk, how they? Work? I talk to a lot of like on the show. We have a lot of like magazine writers, hmm. and they'll be like, "Well, I did oh. this one profile of this person, but what I really want to do yeah, is no. this crazy expose." Blah blah blah. Um, it's a different writing, kind of ambition. I yeah, think. when you're yeah. like in some ways trying to craft perfect sentences right. and stuff like that, like. How does that ambition to improve manifest itself? Well, you're concentrating on what is in front of you. So if I'm working on a poem, it's about the perfectibility of that poem to me. I I don't think really about what I would like to do in the future. I mean, I have projects like that I have outlined and things like that, but it's never like, I'm going to interview Bob Dylan as he farts all over the Nobel Prize (laughs) that he never received I, you know it's, it's i don't have any ideas like that that yeah. seems what mm. well, what are your projects like like that oh isn't it a secret come on there's secret me, can't tell no me i'm working i'm working on poetry again yeah just to make myself normal in my mind i mean it's so it's so refreshing yeah. to go back to poetry after whatever the hell i've been doing Did, for the last three years was it r- like rusty coming back to it a little bit yeah but it's sort of like you can have muscle memory in your mind too is the process of being a reader like really important to staying sharp in your mind? I think so. Yeah. And there's a way of reading that is actually like writing or it's you feel in collaboration with it. I mean, you you have a pen in your hand, you're, you're going along it in a way that's like half creating it as you go. And you're also just like strip mining it for anything you can use. Yeah. So when you're working on something specific, if it's a poem or if it's, you know, something larger, you have an eye toward that work. So everything you look at, everything you're reading, you're, you're sifting for what can be gold, like what could be gold to you, what could be gold to this poem. When you're like living your day-to-day life, or in the case of this book, you're like living at your parents' house, are you writing down details, mm-hmm. phrases, and stuff like that? Like what's your what's your system yeah. for I capturing actually, life? I, I have a notebook that is almost entirely just full of similes, like floating similes. It's just like, well, this is like this and that is like that. That's what I'm doing for the most part. I'm just like writing down these little snatches. I hope that my notebooks are archived after my death because Uh. I want someone to go crazy trying to figure out what I was doing. And then do you, when you're starting to write, you go back and look at those notebooks Mm -hmm. and sort of those are starting points? You can even use them in like a divining way. Like if you're stuck, you just open them and you find something. And when you were living with your parents and and getting this book together, were you like writing down quotes? Yeah, my notebook was just pretty much full of quotes. Yes, and you could hear in the bathroom. You could hear my father shouting up the stairs. So the bathroom was a great place to do it. And you would type them in your phone into your little notes folder and things like that. You you always had to have some way that you could write things down in that household. 
is it weird to live your life and also like capture your life for material in that way at the same time? A little bit. I think it would be weirder to be a professional memoirist because mm. then you're you've really embarked on a vocation where like you are going to use your life for material. It felt different. It felt like just a little a discreet area of time that I had set aside, right. like a little public park for people to piss in. Well, and you'd kind of like, if you were going to become a professional memoirist, you'd mm-hmm. have to go do something kind of outlandish right. now. You'd have right. to be like, like, and now Trisha does I know. Asia. I, exactly. I go to a nudist colony. Yeah. You know, and, I, and there I, are people who live that. Like, I don't yeah. even mean to like shit on that. Like, no, no. It's, that's it, like, that's a real different. thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think it, at the point at which you think I'm going to write another one and then maybe I'll write another one. That maybe shifts things a little bit. Yeah. So you're back to poetry now. Back to poetry. When, like, what's the, like, timetable on, like, putting out a book of poetry? Oh, it's funny. My editor wrote me the other day, and he's like, "Uh, what shall we say? Should we slot you in for a 2018 release or something (laughs) like that? And I'm like, sure, let's see what I've got by then. Mm. Hopefully I'll be, like, seized by some demon of inspiration and just pour something forth onto the page. I mean, is this, we ask people about money on this show. Money, okay. um, real issue for people who want to write oh um, god and journalists like people doing magazine pieces you have to chase it it's absolutely awful so for you like you wrote this book mm-hmm. at a period where you're like i don't have any money yeah. i'm gonna write a book yeah i get some money doing that and now you're going back to poetry which as far as i know i get poor not, again does not pay very I much should money soon be a church so yeah is that like more. planned poverty or do you have like a different way of making money lined up or do you not even think about stuff like that? Yeah, I don't think about it and that's my problem probably. But no, I we we thankfully have some set aside uh, from the advance for this. So it should be all right. It's also true that once you reach a certain point, you know, that you do readings and yep. speaking engagements and lectures and like visiting professorships and things like that. And that's a little bit where your income comes in. Well, I was curious about that. So you never went to college. Like you never mm, went no. back and went to college. Very uneducated. You are not a college graduate. No. Can you go and teach poetry at the college level? Or is this like your dad's guitar buying going to haunt you forever? <laughs> For the rest of my life. So I'll never teach at Harvard. Yeah. No, it varies on the place. Like it, it depends. But definitely some people will for sure hire you. What is your relationship when you meet a young you know, 19 year old, like, oh, I like the that. start of the book who wants to be a poet. Like, what do you tell someone who wants to be a poet? I just talk normally to them so that they can know that some poets are normal. Yeah. That's the best thing you can do. They're going to meet, they're going to yeah. meet you and I find don't give out them advice. I'm just like, yes, I'm like, I am representative of the species of poet. This is what we're like. Well, uh, thank you very much, Trisha Lockwood. Thank you. The book is out now. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Uh, from, uh, Riverhead. Check it out. (laughs) Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Patricia Lockwood, who came in on a grueling book tour. Uh, Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our associate producer, uh, Courtney Harrell. Our sponsors, Audible and MailChimp. Go to readthissummer.com to learn more about MailChimp's Read This Summer, which we, the people behind this podcast, are curating this year in Decatur. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. 
In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.